Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through the art of storytelling. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. I'm Dawn. And I'm John Dillon. Glad to be here with you guys today. And we have Laura with us today. So Laura is a counseling psychologist and works in a federally qualified health center in northern Arizona. In his work, he sees patients in a primary care practice. And on a more personal note, Laura is a trans man with a lesbian history. He transitioned 20 years ago, and shortly after his transition, he returned to school to complete a Ph.D. in psychology. Laura was tired of hearing the horror stories of how trans patients were treated by their mental health providers and decided that the best way to make change is to do it from within the profession. Laura has been an advocate for disadvantaged or marginalized people most of his life. He learned this as a child through the Girl Scouts and has been a member for 50 years. Laura is an avid writer and speaker who has over 55 publications, and he has presented 170 times throughout the world. Laura's work has been recognized throughout his career, and most recently as a psychologist with an APA Presidential Citation, APA See So Good Outstanding Achievement Award, APA Award for Distinguished Contribution to Psychology in the Public Interest, and the Division 44 Distinguished Professional Contribution. Laura, I'm so excited to have you today, and I feel like I should be transparent. I met Laura when I first joined Division 44. I saw, I think it's been about nine years now. So I've been fortunate enough to hear some of these talks and read some of your work. So I'm super excited to have you here. Thanks for being with us today. I'm happy to be here, Don. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, of course. All right, John Dillon, kick us off. I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness as a student who is currently pursuing her PhD. I feel like, um, <clears throat> can we talk afterward? I may need mm -hmm. your help in prayer. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm very grateful to have you on this platform and we're looking forward to learning so much more about you. So of course we want to kick off our first question to help open Pandora's box a little bit, but what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? You know, in the uh, in my intro, I was very deliberate about writing that I'm a trans man with a lesbian history, because both of those are still uh, very important parts of who I am. Um, you know, I think I still have lesbian sensibilities, whatever exactly that means, <laughs> and you know th that's where. Um, it actually started in Girl Scouts where I learned my feminist uh, values. But as a lesbian, that just kind of cemented that in place for me, you know, as I continued to try to fight for people who didn't have a voice, reach out uh, to people who needed something that I could help them with. And, uh, and so, you know, in, in some ways, philanthropist in terms of both monetary and other types of giving, giving of my time, of my resources. I mean, there are a lot of, of pieces that are important about my identity, but it ultimately comes down to if I had to choose only one thing, it would be that I'm a transgender person. I love that you 
open us up to this idea that Girl Scouts teaches feminism, and that's where you first started learning that feminist mindset and theory. And um, we've seen kind of that progression more recently with Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and being more inclusive and more outwardly open and having those conversations. So I'd love to hear what your experience has been and how that introduced you to feminism. You know, we, um, Girl Scouts, I don't think are any much different today than they were 50 years ago. Uh, girls join a troop, they have a leader, uh, they earn awards, uh, we call them badges. Uh, there were other words for some of the awards that I learned, earned. Uh, challenge awards. Uh, when I was a girl, the highest uh, honor award that you could get was called a first class scout. Today it's called a gold award. And, you know, you have to have made some kind of a significant contribution to your community and have achieved some other pieces that um, go with that. But, you know, it it starts with values around the environment uh, taking care of our lived structure, understanding that even though you don't have all of the riches in the world, you have something that somebody else doesn't have. And you can use that to leverage breaking down the barriers that are holding that person back. I, you know, I learned about working with people with disabilities. I learned about you know, how to, how to push away those people who said, you're, you know, you're just a girl. What do you know? Mm. Yeah. And I heard plenty of that as a kid. You're just a girl. What do you know? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, I was taught to treat my elders with respect. And part of me was like, ah, what do I do? But the other part of me was, I get to stand strong in what I know. Thank you so much. That I think people don't often realize that those messages are actually uh, delivered through Girl Scouts. That, Jendalyn, I wonder. I'm wondering if you're thinking some of the thing, same things I'm thinking in terms of what we recorded yesterday. We recorded with someone yesterday who was a camp leader at a camp and saw the very opposite happening at this girls' camp and saw Mm -hmm. girls um, being encouraged to attach their value to whether they kissed a boy at another camp. And it was encouraged by the leaders, by the group leaders. So I find myself thinking back to the conversation we had with a guest yesterday and hearing you talk about the exact opposite experience and really appreciating that structure that was given to put value on female identity and their opinion and their worth and their contributions when there's so many camps out there and, um, you know, they might have similar awards and similar trainings at the basic level, but the message they're getting and the message these girls are receiving and internalizing are so vastly different. Well, and, you know, honestly, I don't know what what girls are hearing today. That's what I heard 50 years ago. It's interesting. There was a post on Facebook from someone who went to the same grade school as I did talking about a 
50-mile hike in northern Arizona that his Boy Scout troop did and how his mother and other mothers would have to go to where they were on the trail every night to prepare their food and make sure that they had their tent set up. And I don't think I did that that trail in any really significantly different time than he did. Mm-hmm. We carried all that stuff on our backs. Yeah. Nobody met us to, to put up our tents. Nobody met us to put up our foods. We carried our food, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, to hear this boy say, look what I did. And this 50 mile hike, this five day, 10 miles a day, 50 mile hike. And, you know, thanks so much to our troop leaders who helped make that happen. And I'm like, that's a very different experience than I had on the exact same trail. You know, we started at the Boy Scout camp and walked 50 miles. And, yeah, about 10 miles a day. And, you know, we had five days worth of food yeah, uh, and ways to get water along the trail, which is a big deal in northern Arizona. Wow. You know? Yeah, that's really reinforcing that dichotomy of this is the man's role, this is the woman's role. We're going to bring these women in to come cook because men can't cook and make sure your tent's okay because that, that's the female role and, and you all can't do that on your own. Yeah, I think it's it's very um, interesting um, to see how things have changed, you know, through through these rituals that have come down through generations. Um, and I, I think it's because I, I was a Girl Scout and um, I remember some of the things that we had to learn and things that we had to do. But I cannot lie, I was a part of that privileged generation where you know, they were trying to give us participation trophies to a degree because they just knew that some of us just weren't going to be that roughneck person. Like it just wasn't going to happen, you know, to get out and to to achieve those real badges of honor that some people were like, this is what I'm destined to do. Some of us just did not care. Um, but when I think about the the, the generations now of, of this day, they don't have a knowledge of what things look like to achieve from the times that they that have already been experienced, but they do have an understanding of what they have to go through and do things now. And so I just I, I really appreciate the intergenerational approach to how things have to evolve with this process. But I, I'm grateful for having you know those who have gone on the path that I'm on to really understand this is what real work looks like. This is what sacrifice looks like. You know, this is what, you know, putting your all out there is and still surviving. And so I, I'm indebted. I truly am. I'm indebted to that process of you guys' experience. Well, and Don, you were saying, uh, talking about the ways that Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts have changed in recent years and... Uh, Girl Scouts have made it clear that anybody who identifies as female is welcome as a girl member. Uh, men can't be a member until they're adults. And and the Boy Scouts have finally uh, said that it's okay, I think, that if a gay man or gay boy wants to be a part of the Boy Scouts, that he won't be kicked out. I think they've gone that far, but I don't think they've said anything about trans people. And 
and I'd be really surprised, in fact, if they have, uh, because so many, uh, so much of Boy Scouts is often tied to church groups, especially within the LDS faith. And I know how they feel about trans people, and I'm not trying to, this isn't, you know, knock down religious organizations conversation, um, but, you know, I know pretty clearly uh, how I would be welcomed in those spaces, and the fact is that I wouldn't be welcomed. But nobody knows that I'm trans unless I tell them I'm trans. And that's that uh, very complicated passing privilege that I have. And many trans people could never pass. Uh, other trans people like me, uh, you know, stir in a little testosterone, and I look like a guy who's always been a guy. Yeah, because I think I, what I've heard, too, from Boy Scouts still is that there's controversy still around troop leaders being gay men. And I don't think I've heard that that's shifted yet, um, but there's been conversation around it. So it's interesting, these two different organizations that are usually talked about in parallel with one another still are on very different parts of that progression and evolution. Well, and people know when um, a boy or a man says, I earned my Eagle Award, they know exactly what that is. But they don't necessarily know what a first-class Girl Scout or, um, gosh, I can't think of what it was before me, uh, or a Gold Award was or is in the Girl Scouts. Uh, they just don't know what that is because they haven't been exposed to it in the same ways. And, you know, that's the sort of uh, men are more important than women conversation. We'll pay more attention to what our our sons are doing than what our daughters are doing. And, uh, you know, the fact that that still in many ways is the case is is really disturbing to me. Um, you know, and then you talk about trans people and you're talking about a whole different level of discrimination and mistreatment and violence. Yeah, and I know that that kind of transitions us into your story as well um, in a nice way because I know that's part of what your story is going to be about. So I'd love to hear the story you're bringing to us today. Sure. You know, there's something that a lot of people don't talk about, uh, whether it's in the mental health field or in queer circles, and that is uh, the significance of depression in our community. And I think the first time that I ever thought about what that means for me was I was probably 27 years old, and I'm 58 now, so 30 years ago. And I was seeing a counselor for the first time, and she diagnosed me with dysthymia. I had no idea what that meant. She told me what it was. Uh, and I went to the library, and I thought I was sneaking and doing something I wasn't supposed to do. And, uh, you know, checked out from the reference desk a copy of the DSM, and it was probably the DSM-3 back then, and looked up this thing called dysthymia. What does this mean? What does this look like? And... Depression has always been 
a constant, this is my very technical professional term, noise that follows along with me. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what I do. It's always there. And it's not that it shouldn't be there. It's how I decide to pay attention to it. And for me, in 1994, no. Yeah, in 1994, I got sober. And the thing that I often heard in 12-step meetings was don't kill yourself until you have at least five years of sobriety because you won't know who you're killing. The idea being that it really takes that long to truly detox to be able to really understand who you are as a person. So that was uh, April of 94 that I got sober. In October of 98... So four and a half years later, I was going through a really difficult bout of depression. And I said to myself, in six months, I get to kill myself. Because I'll have five years of sobriety. Because that's what they tell me at meetings. And five months later, I sat down with uh, someone who has become a very dear friend. His name is Rafe. And listened to him tell his story as a trans man and asked him all kinds of questions, you know, what it meant for him and, you know, why transition as opposed to sexual orientation stuff. You know, at the time I was, I was conflating gender identity and sexual orientation, um, but I was new to the community and didn't really understand what all that meant. And after our conversation, I came to realize that what I needed to do was tr was to transition. So with four years and 11 months of sobriety, I figured out who I was. And, and honestly had forgotten my promise to kill myself in April of 99. Instead, in March of 99, I figured out what, what was important in my life and what was important is figuring out a way to thrive as a trans person. And I was really lucky to transition in Seattle, Washington in the late 90s. Um, my counselor, although she didn't have uh, the kind of knowledge and experience that she felt she needed to have to support me in transition, she knew who to refer me to to get that piece of clinical work done. So that when I went to a medical provider to start on hormones, which I started six months later, you know, I had the letter that I needed and all that other crap that's still required 20 years later, 20 years later, and we're still forcing trans people to get this letter of support from someone. In this case, I saw her once, one time. 50 minutes, and, and she wrote the letter. And I'm very deeply grateful that she did that uh, because at that time, 20 years ago, people were still being required to do the real-life test, to get therapy for a certain number of sessions, and, you know, all kinds of ridiculous demands on trans people. And I didn't have any of that uh, put up for me. And I don't even recall that I had to get a letter to have chest surgery, which I 
so I started hormones in September of 99. I had chest surgery in June of 2000. So a little over six months later. And I don't recall having to, to get that letter. And, you know, the lucky thing with the latest version of the standards of care says that a hysterectomy is genital surgery. So I was able to write the surgeon who did my hysterectomy so that I could get a correct birth certificate, which is a long story that has nothing to do with being queer. But I needed to get a new copy of my birth certificate, and I needed it to make sense. Uh, having it say, Lord M. Dickey is female, uh, wasn't going to work for me. Uh, and the state of Arizona was like, well, you need da-da-da-da. I said, here it is. Here's the letter. They're like, oh, I kind of know what you're talking about. So when I decided to go back to school, it was very much about wanting to change the landscape around how mental health providers conceptualize transgender people and how to work with them and not pathologize their identity, not pathologize their experience. Uh, but learn how to support them and understand the structural inequities that are in, in lots of people's lives and how to best uh, dismantle those uh, so that trans people can move forward and live happy, productive lives. Depression has followed me around to all of the places that I've been uh, for the work that I've done over the last, I went back to school in 05, so, uh, so 15 years ago. And, you know, for me, that depression has included needing to be hospitalized in an inpatient unit, uh, needing to go to treatment. And I say that because too many people in the field, especially queer folks, don't feel safe talking about that. You know, they're concerned that that means that uh, they're going to lose their job, they're going to lose their license, that, you know, all of these bad things are going to happen to them because they were honest about who they were. But to me, the reality is if we can't be honest about that, it's going to continue to be an issue for us. And so I have no qualms standing up and saying, this is who I am. This is a part of my story. And is it pretty? No. But what queer person has a pretty story, right? It's not like our parents sit us down when you know, on the eve of our 13th birthday and say, okay, honey, here are all of your choices when you grow up. And this can even start right now. You can be a girl, you can be a boy, you can be something in between those places. You could be gay, you can be pan, you can be bi, you can be straight. And I, I really, honey, it doesn't matter what you do. I will always love you and hold a special place in my heart for you. Just let me know how I can support you. Who had that conversation from their parents? You know, right now in the state of Arizona, there's a woman who's trying to pass a bill on sex ed that says you can't talk about homosexuality. 
And I saw somebody post something on Facebook that said, I hope that this person isn't raising children. Whether she's raising children or not, you know, the message that a queer kid hears when he sees that on the news is, there's something wrong with me. And I don't have a safe place in society. And that breaks my heart. Because those are the kids who are probably thinking about ending their life, attempting to end their life, and even successfully completing suicide. And we hear of way too many stories about that. And, you know, and then you add on top of that the numbers of trans people who are murdered. The first one in the U.S. this year happened on New Year's Day. I'm like, we can't even wait till the week is over before we start counting again. I, I tell people that my goal in life is to make the world safe for transgender people. If I only make it safer, people are still at risk. People are still dying. But if I can make the world safe then people don't have to worry about what bathroom they use, how they get dressed. I have a trans masculine patient who loves the color pink and everybody equates pink with girls. So when he dresses all in pink, he gets, you know, at what you would expect a boy would get, a young man would get if he chose to dress all in pink. Breaks my heart. And this young trans adolescent finally feels like they have some hope because they found a counselor who gets it, who isn't going to pathologize their gender, who's going to politely ask, what pronouns do you use? What name would you like me to use? The first time I called their name in the waiting room, they were like, they used the right name. And I thought to myself, why wouldn't I use the right name? And then I thought to myself, it's like, where's my place? Where do I belong? And, you know, whenever I, it's interesting, I've lived in uh, the Deep South. I've lived in the Midwest. I've lived in the Northwest. Now I live in the Southwest. Uh, probably the only part of the country that I haven't lived in is New England. And people often say to me, Laura, why are you moving to that place? You won't be safe. And mm -hmm. my answer is because I have the privilege of being able to be out as a trans person and not have to worry that I'm not going to be safe. I, I can be safe because... I can choose when I come out to somebody. Other people don't have that privilege. Just walking down the street, people are like, oh, there goes a trans woman. You know, who does she think wearing that dress? So, you know, my story is about having the voice to come out. It's about being honest about my mental health concerns because it does me no good not to talk about it. My provider can't help me if she doesn't know what I'm going through. And I, I can't tell you how many times I tell my patients who are suicidal, 
I can't help you if you're not here. And I'm not talking about no-shows to appointments. I'm talking about them ending their life. So it's, you know, it in many ways is a real privilege for me to be able to stand up and claim my space, allow my voice to be heard, because other people don't have the security to do that. And, you know, I know that in the end, if I get fired from my job because of talking about trans issues, you know, I'll know that's why it is, because I work harder than almost anybody else <laughs> in, uh, in my organization. And I do that because I worry about, you know, if I know that if I'm working super hard, they're not going to fire me. And if they do, it's because of who I am. And that goes back to, gosh, the second job, uh, second professional job I ever had in the city of Saginaw, Michigan. I was out as a lesbian at the time, and I had to fill out a health history form. This was in 1986. And as I'm reading through these questions and answering them, I get to a question that says, do you have homosexual tendencies? And I literally like lost, you know, my breath was just like taken away from me in that moment. And I thought, I really need this job. What am I going to do? So I took a deep breath and I read the question again and it said, do you have homosexual tendencies? And with a clear conscience, I said no, because I didn't tend that way. I was that way. But I knew then that I had to be careful because not everybody in the organization that I worked in was going to have my back. So, you know, right away, here I am. Always, we talk about minority stress, right? Always waiting for that next bad thing to happen because of who I am as a queer person. Thank you for sharing all of that. I really appreciate you, like you said, speaking about it is so important and you never know who's going to need to hear what you just said. So I appreciate you bringing all of that to us. Yeah, you're welcome. And I truly believe the work you're doing in, in multiple levels is helping make people safe. And I really hope, like you said, it, it's making them safe, not just safer. Because um, what stands out to me also is your decision to become a part of the process of psychologists making these decisions and writing this literature and trying to shift that so there aren't so many barriers and there aren't so many processes of gatekeeping even though you had a pretty affirming experience, it sounds like, especially for the time in which you were transitioning and coming into your identity, you were fortunate in that you were connected to people who didn't gatekeep and keep you from being able to do what you needed to do to be who you are. And you had that positive experience, but still you knew it was important to change the system. And that's really 
that stands out to me for sure. That's really important part of that story. Yeah, it you know, uh, things were pretty good at the University of North Dakota where I did my training, but they weren't perfect. You know, where I did my uh, internship, pretty good. I had a great supervisor, uh, wonderful training director, but, you know, I was in the Deep South, and then I stayed in the Deep South. And I was very deliberate when I decided where to go to school about not applying to schools in the Deep South. I thought, there's no way that that's going to work for me. Because I think that when I tell my story... When I talk about who I am as a gendered person, I win people over to understanding that we just are, we are people just like they are. Mm -hmm. I wake up in the morning and sometimes it's really hard for me to get out of bed, but I get out of bed and I take a shower and brush my teeth and eat breakfast. And did I say get dressed? I do that, that too. <laughs> and then I go to and I do the work that I do every day. And some days I get to work with trans people and it fills my heart to see how that change is impacting them. I had a patient call me and say, you know, I never got my testosterone. I said, well, gosh, it was sent to your pharmacy on such and such a day. I said, I'm gonna send your physician a note through the electronic health record. I said, but you need to let me know by next Friday if you haven't received that. Don't wait two months. This happened back in November. Like you're waiting all this time to get your testosterone and you think that it has never been sent, but I can see in the electronic health record that it was. I don't get it. You know, so being able to be an agent of change and that makes me a rebel. That makes me uh, fierce. That makes me... Uh, I don't know what the other word is. It makes me whatever the other word is. I always think I need to say words. Um, that means, as Brene Brown says, I dare greatly. You know, I make myself vulnerable with the hope that that means that other people will be able to be maybe not as vulnerable, but safe in that vulnerability. The political climate, the political will right now in the United States is very scary for LGBTQ people. And, you know, I remember getting some feedback on an article that I wrote, a manuscript um, that hopefully will finally be published. You know, and I talk about trans people being more at risk for unstable housing, for unemployment, for uh, untreated uh, medical issues. And the question from one of the reviewers was, well, why is that a problem? That was the question? Yeah. Off record, I need to know what journal that is, number one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, why, why is this a big issue? I'm like, because wow. we're talking about people living on the street. And having to engage in sex work and drug trade just to have a roof over their head. Like, how does that? Yeah. That doesn't even make sense as a question to me that you're saying all these things. And then what kind of privilege do you come from that you think that's not a problem for others? That that's not 
a very stressful way to live that's going to impact your mental health and impact your stability and your meeting your basic needs. Like I don't understand how someone could even come from that viewpoint, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And how many other people feel that way? You know? So what if they don't have a place to live? You know, and then all of the epithets that get said about who they are as queer people. And, you know, I feel really lucky that the few times that I have been mistreated, it's been something that I could get through relatively easily where, you know, I I remember having a, a client some years ago who was in a gendered prison that wasn't consistent with their identity because they defended themselves when somebody attacked them. And the person that attacked them, nothing ever happened to them, but my patient got labeled as you're violent and you need to be in prison that's consistent with the sex you were assigned at birth. Wow. Awful really awful. Uh, The part about um, what you said, just somebody being incarcerated, um, that highlights that violence. And like you were saying, you know, the first trans person who was attacked and, and died because of it was on the very first day of the new year. That's why. I mean, that's such a pervasive example, a pervasive reason why is there's no repercussions either. Those those incidents aren't taken seriously enough. Um, and then if someone does survive, they're the ones who are punished. And just that highlights it in such a very clear way. Well, and there's something that is really wrong with our justice system that in order for the survivor to feel as though the perpetrator is appropriately dealt with based on what happened, they have to get up in front of multiple strangers and retell their traumatic story. Who's there to help that survive? Do they even have somebody who they can talk to to say, you know, today in court, this happened and I felt totally exposed. And, you know, how often do people question, well, gosh, you know, what were you doing to create that problem? It, it does, it's nonsensical to me, makes zero sense because all it's doing is pathologizing what is a normal human experience to identify with one of the letters that falls under the queer umbrella. And I, I, I don't know, I just, I get, I get frustrated and sometimes I wonder, will we ever do anything to make this world safe? And, you know, I, I think of other countries where people have it much worse than we do. The country where the the most percentage of people transition from assigned male at birth to a female identity is Iran. 
Why do they do that? Because they're gay men. They can transition, be in a relationship with a man, and not get killed. Because if you come out as gay in Iran, you're going to get murdered. That's the penalty for being queer in Iran. It's still a very unsafe world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate all the work you're doing to shift that. That's so vital and so important. And it's necessary because if we don't have people like you out there doing the work, that progress is just going to be even slower. Yes, and I can't do this by myself. I know I can't do this by myself. And the queer community needs to find out who their allies are. Because without allies in this process, we will never get the support that we need to be safe in the world. It, it will never happen. And so true. Yeah. Right. Has there ever been an opportunity for partnership with anyone within the community for perhaps building um, maybe a nonprofit of some sort to help with offering additional support for our trans siblings? So uh, the project that I have that I started and I need to do other things to make people aware of it is called My Bandana Project. And if a trans person reaches out to me from my website, mybandanaproject.org, I will send them a bandana and give them directions to tie that around their ankle every day, take a picture of it, send it to a trusted friend, buy a specific time each day, and that is their promise to themselves and to their friend that they aren't going to hurt themselves today. And so it's a way of making sure that people, trans people who are suicidal are making some social connections on a daily basis because we know that isolation is a risk for suicide. And I used to wear the bandana around my ankle every day. I might go back to that. I don't know. I haven't decided. Um, but a few years ago, I got a tattoo of the logo image on my ankle uh, for my bandana project. And so, you know, for trans people who are suicidal, it, you know, it's just, it's just a little piece of cloth, right? And they're going to tie it on their ankle and call somebody or text somebody. And the, the way that's supposed to work is if their friend doesn't hear from them by the agreed upon time, they're supposed to call and do a safety check. And nobody keeps track and I've thought about trying to do this, but I don't think anybody keeps track of the number of trans people who die by suicide. There might be somebody who does. I haven't done it because it feels too heavy for me, uh, too triggering for my own issues around depression and suicide. But their voices need to be heard just as much as the trans people who are murdered's voices need to be heard. It's a different kind of day of remembrance. Yeah, that's so important. I feel like there was a time where people were having those conversations more and there were more talks in the media, and that has dwindled. We haven't been having those conversations, but we know it's still happening. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I don't know how often I see that on Facebook, but often enough that it just makes me wish I could turn the time clock back and be able to sit even just for half an hour with each of those people and help them understand the hope that they have. Because it really is the hopelessness that ultimately, I think, is what leads somebody to make the decision to end their life. No hope for a future. Right. Can't see any other way out. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll definitely link the website for the Bandana Project as well, because I think it'd be great for others to utilize that resource and, like you said, have that self-accountability to keep themselves safe and link up socially with people so that they can have those check-ins that, that can really, you know, when you, when you hold yourself accountable to somebody else, sometimes you need that extra push. Yeah. And it's really important. Yeah. I'm noticing we are about at time to wrap up here, and I'm wondering, is there anything else that you want people to know about or anything else you want to share in terms of how they can connect to resources, connect to you? What else would you like them to know? I think the first thing I want queer people to know, whether they're trans or not, is they're not alone. You know, maybe they stumbled across the website for this podcast and went, oh, this sounds interesting. And part of the reason they're stumbling around the Internet is because they don't have anybody who they feel connected to. And feeling alone is another uh, big risk for suicide. I also want them to know that their story matters. And it matters to me. It matters to the people who they grew up with. I had the opportunity to attend my 40th reunion this fall for the high school that I did my first two years of high school in freshman and sophomore year, which meant that I got a chance to see people who I went to school with from the third through the eighth grades. I didn't have a middle school. We went straight from elementary school into high school. And I saw people I hadn't seen in over 40 years, and nobody said anything ill toward me about my trans identity. And that blew me away. Blew me away. I had no idea that I still had that kind of support from people who I haven't seen in decades and had no idea whether or not, you know, they would even sort of be supportive. So it was a real blessing for me. So yeah, you matter adolescents figure out if there's a gay straight or gender sexuality alliance in their high school or in a neighboring high school. Um, there are all kinds of resources. There has to be somebody at their school who will be supportive on the administration, faculty or staff. And, you know, that can be a scary place for that faculty or staff person because they're putting themselves at risk by being out oftentimes. So, um, be who you are. That's exactly what you're meant to be. And celebrate it, love it, and uh, know that, that other people love just who you are with all those quirks. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. You're welcome, Dawn. I appreciate it.
Yes. Thank you so much. Thoroughly have enjoyed this. I've gained a lot of wisdom and information. So thank you again for your presence. You're welcome. Thanks for being there too. Connect with Beyond Queer Stories on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and on Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, click the link on our Facebook or Instagram page or email us at beyondqueerstories at gmail.com. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please rate us and subscribe to help boost the podcast. Our podcast music is created by B. Steadwell. Check out her music, tour dates, and other queer art at bsteadwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L dot com. Beyond Queer Stories is produced and edited by Dawn Brown and recorded in the Cards Against Humanity podcast studio in Chicago, Illinois. Check out their products at cardsagainsthumanity.com. Talk to you all next week.